Camp is such a meaningful time, and, and it really serves a tremendous purpose, I think, in the formation of, of really children, students, and, and beyond. And I, I know that that's something my family has been thinking about a lot recently, is my two oldest kids just got back from camp yesterday. Their, their summer got started off by going over to their first overnight away from mom camp experience, which was a, a great milestone for all of us, I guess you could say. And, and so it's been fun to have them back and to listen to their stories. It's been fun to think about what's on the horizon for our youth here and their camp experience. And so much of it has led to me really reflecting upon how some of those camp experiences were so formational for me in my own journey. Like I remember when I was around that 10 to 12 years of age, kind of that age range, and I went to T-Barham Sports Camp in New Braunfels, Texas. And that was really the first time that my faith really began to kind of take root. And I really asked Jesus into my heart in a very sincere and an honest, transparent way. And, and then I think about going to church camp as a high school kid, and I would often go with First Baptist Abilene to Jan K Ranch. Uh, a few people in here have probably been there before as well. And, and that was so instrumental and so formative for me because it was there in that environment that so many of my peers also got serious about their faith, and it kind of really brought together uh, the seeds of accountability that were so instrumental for all of us to be able to navigate the high school years, being able to lean on one another and encourage one another with that sort of accountability. And then when I get to college, actually went back and worked at TBRM as a counselor, as a coach, and was able to give back by pouring into the lives of those kids and, and really learning what it meant to work hard and to serve and to pour into uh, others that were trying to understand the gospel and, and take those first initial steps. And that actually led to an opportunity to go and do a sports camp in Zambia with TBRM, which was my first mission trip that I ever got to go on, was to Zambia. And I can still like close my eyes and picture the faces of those, those children, uh, the orphans that we worked with in Zambia, and just the joy that we shared together and how significant of a trip that was for me in confirming what I sensed was a call towards missions. And, and so I think back to these milestones that I had that were all associated with camp, right? I mean, camp can be incredibly significant in the formation of somebody's call in, in their life and in their heart. So I use that as a testimony to truly encourage you this week, pray for these students. Like sincerely, uh, earnestly pray for these students that the seeds of salvation would be sown in the hearts of those who have yet to truly believe, that, that accountability would be fostered and formed amongst these, these peers so that they could lean on one another as they try to navigate whatever season of life that they're in, that, that God would stir up future missionaries, future pastors, doctors, lawyers, whatever the career may be, so that people can use it to his glory. That those are the things that take place so regularly in those environments, and we, we desire that for our kids and all kids that will be a part of it. So pretty, truly, pretty, pretty please pray earnestly for our children uh, that will be experiencing that this week. I also want us to stop and think about the, the opportunity that camp has with spiritual formation as a way for us to even reflect upon why does it create such formative environments and, and to kind of learn from it, right? Because I think one of the other reasons that camp becomes so effective is because you take a week or so out of your normal routine, completely disrupt your normal routine, and you focus entirely on God. And, and you focus on God in an atmosphere, in an environment that infuses joy into your life, right? Because there's a lot of fun things that you get to do at camp. I mean, you act crazy. 
you, you do all sorts of just off-the-wall stuff. It's been hilarious listening to some of the stories that my kids came home with. But, I mean, it, it is a joy-infused, God-focused break-from routine. And I think that's part of what makes it so formational and, and so uh, and, informative and life-changing for any of us that participate in it. And as I was thinking about that, <clears throat> it made me wonder, like, what happens when we stop doing that? Right? Because the reality is, is that all of us need to, to find those moments where we break from the routine, disconnect from technology, from our normal rhythms, focus on God, and do so in a manner that infuses joy into our lives. Like We need those moments whether we're 35 or 55 or 75 or 15. But what typically happens is we kind of reserve it for youth and then we get into adulthood and we stop having that sort of intentionality and then no wonder we lose some of these moments to really form ourselves spiritually, right? And, and we grow stagnant, right? The, the truth is, the reason I'm bringing that up is because spiritual formation should not stop. And so I don't know what it looks like for you, but give thought, give consideration to what would it mean for you in your life for your family, for your marriage, if you literally just disconnected from your routine so that you could go focus on God in a joy-infused way. Like, and how just foundational and formational that could be for us. We need to pursue those things. And so while it may look different from each and every one of us, that needs to be something that we recognize that spiritual formation doesn't happen by accident. It requires that sort of intentionality. And so work that into your life as you approach this summer season. Think about what that could look like for you. The, the last thing that camp makes me think of that does kind of help transition us to a little bit of what we want to talk about today in the scripture is, is this notion of faith, and in particular, um, where your faith really begins. Because a lot of us, it, it does can be or can often be connected to some of these sort of retreat camp-like experiences. And I know that was true for me. And, and I was thinking about that again last week as my kids were getting ready to go to their camp. It was the night before we were getting ready to take them, and I could sense the nerves settling in for my kids. Uh, you know, it was kind of that, that excitement that they had leading up to it and getting packed kind of started to wear off because they were sitting there going, oh man, I'm going to be away from home and from mom and dad on my own for a week in an environment I've never been. And you could see the nerves kind of settle in that night before. And so I took a page out of the playbook uh, that I actually learned when I was a coach and a counselor at, at a at TRM sports camp in college, which they, they told us, if you ever have a camper that starts to experience homesickness, don't talk about home, right? Like if they're missing mom, don't ask them what your, their mom is like. I just miss her so much. You know, like get their minds off of it and actually get them thinking about camp and the fun that's going to happen the next day. And, and so that's what I did with my kids. I started talking to them about how exciting drop-off was going to be and some of the cool chants they were probably going to learn and all these neat experiences. And I was just talking about all the different fun things that camp often provides. And as I was telling them, I, I realized, well, I, I want them to, re to recognize we're not just sending them to have fun. And, and we're sending them so that they can grow in their relationship with God. And I said that, and I referenced this story uh, that I've mentioned to you before, and I mentioned just a second ago, that that's where it really began for me. I was about 10 years old. I was at TBRM Sports Camp, and I remember still gathering together in that little hut where we would come together as the whole camp and do worship and skits, and somebody would then get up and give a message. I remember seeing this young college kid who was the coach there sharing the gospel, and talking about the importance of asking Jesus into your life. And then they, they encouraged the campers to all go out 
and find a quiet place on their own. And so hundreds of campers go and, and get on this large football field, this large soccer field that's right there in the middle of the camp. And I remember laying down there by myself and looking up into the sky and just seeing the stars. And I prayed what was probably one of the most sincere and honest prayers I'd ever prayed in my life up to that point. And I just said, all right, Jesus, come into my heart. And I didn't really understand what that meant. Couldn't fully grasp it, but it was so sincere. And that was the moment where faith really began. It happened in that sort of setting. And I'm curious, where did faith begin for you? Like, what was your moment? How old were you? In what setting? In what context? Was it gradual? Was it very specific? But faith has a beginning point, has a moment, even when we can't comprehend exactly what we're doing. And so what was that beginning moment for you? And, and similarly, I think the reason I want you to think back to the origins of your faith is because what I think all of us can attest to, regardless of how we might answer that question, is that we also recognize that faith is a journey, right? That, that faith is not really intended to be momentary, for a lot of us, it is, right? It's confined to a particular moment. And if we leave it at that moment, it rarely grows. It often just dies, right? Because it was just this one emotional experience. It was just this one moment. But when we really, truly, sincerely mean it, faith starts us on a journey, right? And we begin to figure out what does it mean to actually live by faith? That what all of us can attest to in this room is that regardless of its origins, we will go through different seasons, Different circumstances where that faith is challenged, where it's tested, where it's cultivated, where it's strengthened, where there's confusion, where there's fear, where there's apprehension, concern. We'll go through all these different seasons, and the only thing that can really get us through is faith. And so don't just think about maybe how it began for you, but ask yourself this morning, what season are you in? Is your faith being tested it's being challenged? Are you facing fear, confusion, uncertainty? Like what season are you in? And my hope is that as we kind of revisit the book of Romans this morning, we'll have an opportunity to once again be encouraged that regardless of what season you're in, regardless of the circumstances, whether you're on the mountains, whether you're in the valleys, living by faith is the thing that allows us to give praise to God no matter what situation we encounter. And as people of of Christ as believers, that's exactly who we're called to be, to live and to walk by faith and to give him praise. So that's my hope. And so I wanna just pray for our time together as we get ready to open his scripture and for that faith to be stirred and nurtured this morning. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we do love you and we do thank you. Um, we pray that you would speak to us now with your Holy Spirit, with your presence. God, that you would give us an opportunity to once again <clears throat> be reminded of what it means <clears throat> to live by faith and that our faith would be encouraged, it would be strengthened, God, that your holy word to speak, would speak to us in profound and very real ways. God, that your word would be living and active and that for no matter who we are, what our origins may be in terms of our faith or what season we're in today, God, that each of us would be able to look upon the cross of Jesus Christ and see your incredible love for us and that our faith would once again be stirred and strengthened because of what he has done. God, that that faith would lead us to love, that it would lead us to hope, and that we would understand each and every day what it means, not just to have moments of faith, but to live by it. So we thank you, Father, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. All right, grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3. You know, one time I had somebody ask me, hey, why do you sit on the stool some Sundays and other Sundays you don't? And I said, and and they asked, they're like, it's usually because you're like giving a serious message when you're sitting on the stool. And so I've decided I need to preach some Sunday on a stool when it's not a serious message. And so that's today, just to throw you off so that the the stool doesn't become sort of like visual cue that something serious is coming. Um, I'm just tired. It's been a busy week, so I'm going to sit a little bit today. Uh, But turn to Romans chapter 3, and and let me offer a little bit of a recap of what we've been covering really for the good part of this year. I want to really first begin with just a word of gratitude for Jason and his willingness to fill in for me last week as we were dropping our kids off at, at camp, and he was able to speak to you a little bit about the importance of Sabbath and rest in our pursuit of renewal and how important that is. And I was grateful for that message and it really kind of helped bring a conclusion to this sub-series that we'd been walking through where we've been focused in on Abraham and Sarah and, and looking at their story through the lens of what does it mean to find renewal as a family, right? Renewal within a marriage as husband and wife, uh, renewal as, as mom and dad, and, and really kind of looking at the example that they set for us because uh, we wanted to think through not just renewal from the lens of an individual pursuit, but, but a communal one as well, and especially within the home. But another reason that we considered Abraham and Sarah over the last several weeks is because uh, that story, and Abraham in particular, becomes a, a chief and primary example for Paul in the book of Romans. And, and we're going to see that constantly referenced here in the next few weeks in particular. And so it was good to have that as a backdrop and context. But, but all of this really kind of stems from this theme that we introduced at the beginning of year, to live as God's renewed people. And when we introduced this theme, we did so by looking at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, right? Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It was that reference to renewal there in that context that led to that theme, Right, that when we have our minds renewed, then what are we able to do? We're able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so we, we looked at that as kind of the introductory launching point for this theme of renewal, and we extracted from those verses kind of key characteristics of the renewed life, devotion, discernment, and delight. Right, that when you truly view upon the mercy, give, give view to the mercy of God, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, the natural response is devotion or faith. Right, to devote yourself to something, to commit yourself to something, to trust in something. And so we see the mercy of God and it elicits this response of devotion. And, and so we offer ourselves as a, living, as a living sacrifice. And as we walk through life and we encounter all these different seasons, seasons where that devotion, that faith is going to be tested or challenged or cultivated or whatever it is, we're going to recognize the need for discernment. Right? How do we navigate life's different seasons? How do we make decisions? How do we discern what God's will is? And, and that's another aspect to faith, is seeking that level of discernment. But what we can see is that even when it's confusing, even when we face seasons that are difficult or challenging or painful, we can still trust that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Right? It leads to joy. It leads to delight. Right? And so those were the key characteristics that we used to introduce this theme of renewal. And then we, we uh, looked at Ruth and Naomi as kind of an example, but really Romans was going to be our guide throughout the year. So we started this series in Romans, and as we walked through the first chapter, we answered kind of those main questions. Who wrote the letter? 
uh, who received the letter, why was it written, and we kind of walked through this introduction. And as we were walking through the introduction to Romans, if you go back to Romans 1, 16, and 17, that's where you find Paul's thesis. That's where you find the main theme of the whole letter, right? That, that Paul in this very you know, powerful description says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? For it is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For a righteousness of God has been revealed. And what was it that was revealed? That the righteous will live by faith from first to the last, right? That the righteous will live by faith. This is the theme, this is the statement that Paul introduces and he does it with such eloquence and such power that the righteousness of God is a righteousness that lives by faith. That's the theme. But what makes the journey through Romans so interesting is that you get to the very next verse and Paul takes your attention off of the righteousness of God and back onto the wrath of God, right? It's a very abrupt change. You get to 118 and he says, but don't forget the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness and those who suppress the truth. And so that takes us into this deep dive into the godlessness and wickedness that existed in this particular time period and really in every human heart, but with the special attention both to the Gentile way of wickedness and, and the Jewish way of wickedness, right? The rest of chapter one, starting in verse 18, kind of speaks to what you would find within the more Gentile audience, that they would exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship created things rather than the creator, and then all the depictions of how that begins to work itself out. And so you see this, this very vivid description of, of sinfulness for the Gentile. And then you get to chapter 2 and Paul says, oh, by the way, Jews, don't forget, you who are getting ready to condemn them, you do the very same things. And he spends a good chunk of chapter 2 explaining how they break the very law that they've been given. And that the Gentiles have a similar law on their hearts. And so Paul begins to speak to what, what role the law actually has in awakening them to their own unrighteousness, their own sinfulness. So that it culminates there in chapter 3 for Paul to declare, there is no one righteous, no not one. No one who seeks God, no one who understands. And so for the end of chapter one, all of chapter two, and the first part of chapter three, Paul gives this deep dive into explaining why either Jew or Gentile are in desperate need for saving, right? That the wrath of God reveals an undeniable need for saving because we are all sinful and that the law has made an awareness to that sinfulness, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether it's on your heart or given by Moses. Right? And so, so you reach this level of desperation, which then allows Paul to kind of begin to briefly shift and subtly shift off of the wrath of God and get back to his thesis from 1, 16 and 17. Right? He gets to Romans 3.21, which is where we were on Easter, where he says, but now a righteousness apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. It is a righteousness that is by faith in Christ Jesus whose sacrifice was an atonement for our sins. That's what we talked about on Easter, that the faith that we are to demonstrate and to live by, according to chapter one, is a faith in Christ, whose blood on the cross, his sacrifice on the cross, is an atonement for the sins that we're now all aware of. And so Paul is walking us through that journey. What, what we're gonna get a chance to do today is kind of use the end of chapter three as a reminder of how all these things kind of integrate together. How, how does faith and law and righteousness all work together to kind of bring that section to a close and lead us into chapter four where he really dives further into this concept of faith. So we'll be looking at verses 27 through 31 today 
and, and bringing these thoughts that Paul has presented to a conclusion. So follow along with me starting in verse 27. <clears throat> he says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Okay, so you can hear the different elements of so much of what he's referenced in the first three chapters, this idea of faith, this idea of law, and how it all works together, okay? And so as, as Paul presents this understanding of righteousness in the earlier part of 21 through 26, this righteousness that comes by faith, he then levels this, this kind of attack, this argument, this accusation that speaks to boasting, right? If righteousness comes by faith, where then is boasting, and, and when he gives us this question, we begin to learn kind of a key ingredient that is important for us to consider this morning when we begin to ask the question, what does it mean to live by faith, right? The, the first thing that Paul begins to, to question is how boasting is eliminated from faith altogether, right? He asks that question, where then is boasting? Now, he's speaking directly to a particular type of boasting that was going to be common and prevalent amongst the Jewish audience, but before we get to that specificity, let's just recognize that boasting is a problem for every human heart, right? And, and boasting is anti-gospel, right? It's, it's not just referenced here, but if you look at 1 Corinthians 1, Galatians 6, and several other places in Paul's writing, you will see time and time again that we are not to boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ, right? There is no room for boasting. So what does it mean to live by faith? Well, you don't succumb to boasting, and yet... So many of us, every human heart can fall victim to the temptation to boast, right? Boasting at its core definition is pride, right? Pride is that, that sense that allows me to determine what is right and wrong for myself. It's the sin of the garden, right? It's the heart of every sin that I get to decide right and wrong for who I am and then in, in my decisions, my actions, and then I get to boast accordingly. And so every human heart is susceptible to this temptation, so maybe a question we need to ask ourselves is, how does boasting find itself to be tempting for us? Like, like, how do you find yourself possibly falling victim to the temptation of boasting? Where do you see your tendencies to boast in your life? I think we can see it pretty prevalent in a lot of different areas of society, right? In culture as a whole, that's going to constantly reinforce the idea of boasting and accomplishments and achievements, accomplishments and achievements that can manifest themselves in a lot of different ways, like, like money. A lot of folks find that impulse to boast in their financial successes, correct? Like, I mean, if we, if we have a certain earning power or success, we can boast indirectly or directly by the homes that we buy, the neighborhoods that we live in, the cars that we drive, the clothes that we wear. And it's, it's this boasting in a financial success. We, we boast in our appearances, right? We give a lot of time and attention to to how we look and how others perceive us. And, and when we get a certain level of attention, we're gonna boast in our physical appearances. We might boast in our intellect, right? The degrees that we've earned, the status that it's allowed us to achieve, the, the vocabulary that we can use, and all these things that convey to others how smart and intellectual we are, right? It could be that we just wanna boast on certain accomplishments, certain opportunities, right? Things we've had a chance to do, 
people we've had a chance to meet, places we've had a chance to go see. We, we boast in these different accomplishments, right? There are all these different things that kind of stir up that spirit of pride that we have to be mindful of that we often might try to boast in. But I think the other thing we have to consider is not just what kind of tempts us to boast, but how we might try to boast. Because there's a lot of different ways that people might end up being boastful and prideful and demonstrating that to the people around them. Right? Some people just come right out and do it. Right? Some people are just outright prideful and they let you know. This is kind of the Ron Burgundy approach to boasting. Right? You know, Those people, they're like, I don't know if you know me, but I'm kind of a big deal. Right? Like it's that, that kind of mindset. And those folks are maybe not as common, but they're there. Right? Uh, but probably what you see more commonly is the passive-aggressive humble brag approach to boasting. We've all seen that take place and have probably fallen victim to it as well. These are the folks that are gonna kind of brag indirectly and, and try to maintain a posture of humility but brag in the process. I remember I had a friend in college who sincerely in one of our conversations said, I pride myself on being humble. And I remember hearing it going like, can you say that? Does that work? Doesn't that kind of like contradict itself? I don't know, but you, you know that spirit, right? People that will try to give out a, a presence of humility while really bragging in the process. And social media has accentuated both of these tendencies, right? Because it's a platform of just constant self-promotion. So you can either do it passive-aggressively with photos, or you can do it just outright and brag, but we see people boast in all these different ways in a lot of different capacities. One that you may not think of, but I think needs to be considered as well, is that sometimes we boast by tearing other people down, right? Like that's, that's another form of boasting if you think about it, right? And so we'll, we'll find the flaws or, or the mistakes or the negatives in someone else and we'll offer critique about other people so that we can feel better about ourselves in the process, right? And so sometimes it's, it's a negative connotation that we assign towards others so that we can elevate ourselves, so boasting manifests itself in a lot of different ways and is motivated by a lot of different reasons. And so what does it look like in your life? Where do you fall victim to those things? But yet, I, I want us to recognize that this isn't just something we need to think about from an individualistic point of view because it's not like churches are immune to this stuff either. Right? This is something that can exist on communal levels, collective levels. You see a lot of the same thing take place within churches, right? They'll, they'll be prideful in how much money they can bring in or how many people they can bring in and how nice a facility can look or all their different accomplishments, the intellect that they can promote. Like churches can, can also fall victim to that sort of pride and they can, they can demonstrate it outrightly. They can do it passive aggressively. They can do it on social media. They can do it by tearing down other churches, pointing out all the flaws that everybody else has. But look at our church, man, we do it right. Like Christians fall victim to this on individual and communal levels all the time. And what Paul is trying to say here is that when you live by faith, boasting is excluded. That's remarkable. Right, so if we're gonna ask ourselves that question, what does it mean to live by faith? A key litmus test is to evaluate, is there any measure of pride in boasting in my life, my church's life, Man, boasting is excluded when I live by faith. That's a really powerful statement. And, and Paul begins to kind of dive deeper into it and helps us understand why we can say so definitively that boasting should be excluded. Because he, he begins to attack a specific mindset that the Jews in particular inhabited or, or like that they 
kind of uh, accentuated in their own way of thinking, right? The, the way the Jews thought and the way that they were often guilty of boasting was because of the law, right? And, and he says this, it's excluded, but by what law? The law of works? No, the law of faith. And so he's speaking to this idea that the Jews felt like a couple of things. Because they had been given the law, they had a couple of things to their advantage. Number one, they had a roadmap, so to speak. They had a set of instructions that allowed them to know what works they needed to do to become righteous. Right, so I knew that if I lived this certain way, I would achieve a certain level of righteousness. And that's, that's how the Jews thought. And because they were given that roadmap, it wasn't just that they had this works-based mindset, they also kind of had this, this view of privilege and status. God chose us. He gave us the law. He didn't give it to anyone else, so we're, we're God's chosen people. And so whether I obey it or not, I still have a, a privileged and, and more beneficial status than anyone else because God gave it to my people. And so it was kind of those two different mindsets that he was attacking the idea of a works-based mindset and also this mindset of special privilege. And so Paul begins to work through that. He says, is this really the work of the law? Is that how you attain this idea of faith? To, to, to live by works? Is that where your boasting comes from? Now, when we begin to, to think about that mindset and how it might apply to us in our context today, we need to recognize there's a disconnect. We're, we, we don't come from a Judaic background that understands the depths of the cultural history and, and the law and the place of the law in Judaic living. But I think we all can still fall victim to a works-based mentality. Kevin and April did a great job of it. And, and it's not just something kids fall victim to. We do it all the time, right? That we begin to equate following Jesus or being a Christian to morality, right? A certain code of conduct. I mean, I remember distinctly that this is kind of what my first introduction into the faith really entailed. I, I remember praying that prayer. I remember growing up throughout the seasons of adolescence and asking myself, okay, what does it really mean to be a Christian? Like, what does that mean for me? And while it was never explicitly stated, I, I can tell you loud and clear, the message that I heard, that, that I received at that age, was that essentially to be a Christian meant don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss. And that was my understanding of faith. Morality. Live a certain way, and then you'll be a good Christian. And that's kind of how I responded. And, and that's not just something we encounter when we're younger. That's not just something we encounter in the stages of youth. Man, we, we all experience this, even into adulthood. Maybe the code of conduct changes. Maybe our standards of morality shift and change. But every single one of us, if we're not careful, we can, can fall into that mindset that tells me that I really have to earn my righteousness. Got to go to church. Got to be on a committee. Got to serve a certain way. Got to got to maintain a certain reputation, right? And it becomes a works-based mentality. And Paul is attacking that mindset. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn righteousness, right? And the reason we need to guard against that is the same reason the Jews had to watch against it or guard against it as well, okay? Because here's what Paul is trying to say. First of all, he's saying, none of you have done it. Right? If you go back and reread chapters one and two, the end of chapter one and through chapter two, you're gonna see Paul clearly lay it out. Man, all of us are sinners. 
No one is righteous. Everyone has broken the law. So to think that you can achieve righteousness by a morality works-based mindset is faulty thinking. But more importantly, when you begin to think that way, you also undermine the very essence of the gospel because you make Jesus' death unnecessary. Because if you can earn righteousness by works, by obedience to the law, then Jesus' death was in vain. It's not needed. And so when you embrace this works-based mentality, you, you diminish the very essence of salvation. You diminish the cross of Christ. And so we have to guard against it in our context as well because it's going to delude us into thinking that somehow we can live right enough to earn some measure of righteousness. And in thinking that way, we actually undermine the very gospel we claim to believe in. And that's what Paul is attacking. Let's notice something. He's not attacking the law. He's attacking a perspective of the law. Right? He, he's, he's attacking works and a works-based mentality, not the law itself. And so he, he combines that argument by also addressing this idea of special status. Right? And so he's also recognizing that the Jew is going to sit there and think, well, whether I obey the law or not, I'm still privileged because we received it. We're, we're God's chosen people. And so, so Paul argues against that by actually evoking the Judaic view and their, their, uh, their hard belief and strong belief in monotheism. Right? I love what he does. He's like, is God only the God of the Jews? Or is he the God of the Gentiles too? And he asks them that rhetorical question. And he knows what they're going to answer, because if you know anything about the Jews, man, the essence of what it meant to be Jewish takes you back to Deuteronomy 6. It was a prayer. They would pray regularly throughout the day. It was called the Shema, right? Shema is a Hebrew word for hear, and that's how that verse begins in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And so the, the essence of their understanding of the law, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength was rooted in the oneness of God. Jews were fiercely committed to this monotheistic belief. And so when Paul says, so is he just the God of the Jews? Or is he the God of the Gentiles too? The answer is an obvious, well, no, he's God of both. Absolutely, there's only one God. He's God of both of them. And so now Paul is going to progress that argument a little bit further. Well, if he's God of both, then why wouldn't righteousness be extended to both? Why would he only choose righteousness for one? And if he's going to extend righteousness, wouldn't he do it the same way? Why would he only give law to a certain people so that the others couldn't know him as God? And if he's going to give this law not of works, but a law of faith, isn't he going to ask those who didn't receive the law to come to him by that same faith? And so he uses this argument of monotheistic belief against the Jews to show them that their, their view of status that gave them a certain privilege against the Gentiles, couldn't even stand on its own belief system. Right? You weren't privileged. It's the same God of all, and he's going to call all people the same way, through faith. Right? And as he had explained in chapter 2, he showed us the Gentiles were given that law written on their hearts. And so they understood that they too needed saving and that they also could come by faith and that the Jews were going to come forward by that same faith. And so he's making this argument over and over and over again, right, that God is of all and that righteousness comes by faith, which is what leads to kind of his final proclamation and summary statement, which is anticipating this other question that the Jews were undoubtedly asking. 
right? Because if you're going to hear Paul say, all right, well, it's going to be a righteousness by faith, and that that giving of the law didn't really matter if you were Jew or Gentile, then the Jewish response is going to be, well, then why do we need the law at all? What's the point? Aren't you nullifying the law? Now, that would be a, a pretty significant accusation for Paul to answer, because if he's nullifying the law, he's going to have a hard time convincing people that this is God's way, because the law was essential, right? It, it's a revelation of God. And so now Paul has kind of got this conundrum, right? Am I, am I actually minimizing the importance of the law? And so his answer to that question is for them to understand that they had the wrong view of the law. They saw it as this pathway, this roadmap towards righteousness, and Paul's saying it was actually a roadmap to faith, right? You, you, you Jews, you saw this law and all these different things that you had to adhere to, this morality, this works-based mindset. If you view the law as a way of giving you instruction on works-based obedience, well, then you've got the wrong sense of it. But if the law was actually intended to be given to awaken all of us to this reality that none of us is righteous, that if it was given to awaken us to our own sinfulness and to see that we need a Savior, then what the law is actually doing is leading us to faith. That the law, by doing that and awakening every human heart, whether it was written on your heart or given to you by Moses, and helping you see that there is no one righteous leads you to faith. So this law is not of works, it's of faith. So do we nullify this law? By no means. We actually uphold it. It's doing what it was intended to do. It's a remarkable statement. Just a few verses for Paul to really unpack all these different nuances of law and faith and righteousness that, that is applicable to us, right? And so, so if we were to try to transition here to, to some form of application, kind of understanding now what Paul is really trying to, to argue here at this section of the letter, the, the, think that the tricky aspect to this conversation, and again, you saw it in the children's message, is understanding then what role transformation actually plays then in our lives? What, what, what role does morality really play for us? Because it's not like it's unimportant. It's not like we should never do some form of works. As James is going to say, faith without works is dead. And so how do these work together? Right? And I think the, the fundamental point that we have to constantly remind ourselves as believers and we know this, and we say this all the time, but we have to encourage one another and remind ourselves, especially if we're gonna ask, what does it mean to live by faith, is to remember the sequence. Like, to remember the order, the source of transformation. Right? What we see in the gospel, when you look upon the mercy of God and you see him fully express his love to us by sending his own son who would die on a cross and live and die and be that atoning sacrifice to remove our sins so that we could be justified freely, as Paul says earlier. If we look at that, then what we have to never forget is that grace and love leads to transformation. Transformation does not lead to grace and love. That is such a fundamental part of the gospel that we can never forget. And too often, even subconsciously, even directing, that's what our boasting can reveal, is that we've fallen back into this idea that somehow our decisions, our morality, our actions can earn us righteousness. When the reality is, grace and love leads to transformation. 
Transformation doesn't lead to grace and love. And so let me, let me try to close with a story that I think brings this together. At least it does for me. I hope it, it does for you as well. <clears throat> to me, it kind of creates a picture that maybe we can hold on to. How do I take all these nuances then and apply it so that I can live by faith? What does that actually look like practically? All right, so here, here's the story. And I, I've shared this story with you before, but I think it was with a slightly different point in mind. But I'll, I'll repeat some of this today. Um, when we adopted Wu from China, he was a little less than two years old, and he had a bilateral cleft lip and palate. <clears throat> and so you saw him, and it was significant disfiguration to his mouth. And I mean, it was pro- pronounced. And by the world standards, anyone would look at him and say, okay, that's not what was intended. Um, he had a major gap on, on two sides of his upper lip and no palate whatsoever in the roof of his mouth. And so by the world standards, you could see that and label it as brokenness, deformity, disfigured, whatever. And one of the things that really uh, kind of surprised me, uh, but, but really grabbed a hold of me, is that within the first few moments and days of having Wu as our son, like, we just fell in love with him. And we actually loved this part of him. Like his smile was so unique and so different. And he'd grin and and his mouth would just spread in this very cute, just adorable way. I mean, it was beautiful. Now the world wouldn't call it beautiful, but, but we did. And we loved it. And we loved him just the way he was. Right, to the point that even knowing he was going to get surgery, there was even kind of like a little bit of a grieving process that he would not be who we knew him to be when we first had him. But we knew he needed surgery. Like we knew that part of him needed to be transformed. Right, because we knew that everything the world was going to throw at him, he was going to need to be able to speak. He was going to need to be able to articulate. He he was going to need that transformation to better encounter the world. And so we, we signed him up for these surgeries. And when he was around two years old, he went through a series of surgeries to, to have it fixed and transformed. Now, he was two, and he couldn't speak in a, in a way that we understood. And so I don't really have a clear, definitive way to know what he was thinking when we took him in for surgery that day. I really don't know. But I think all of us could probably relate to and try to empathize or sympathize with a young child and acknowledge that there was probably fear. Right? He was, he was probably confused. Um, he was probably worried. And, and on the other side of it, there was pain. And there was a time where those scars were going to need to heal. And so he's feeling all those different things. And so what does he have left to go through it? The only thing he has to navigate all those emotions is faith. Somehow he has to, in his own little childlike heart, trust these two new people in his life that he has just met, that he's calling mom and dad, and trust that they're gonna do what's best for him. That's all he has. 
And I can tell you now that I know him, even more so than I did then, that I, I, I would suggest that probably one of the big things he was wrestling with was whether or not we were going to be there when it was all said and done. I'm sure that when they wheeled him away for surgery and he looked at us, he probably, in his own little mind, in his own little way, thought, are those faces I'll see again? Or just two more that will fade away like all these other faces I've had in the first two years of my life? He just wanted to know if we'd be there. And so he comes out of surgery, and yes, there's pain, and it takes time to heal. But he saw that mom and dad were there. And we got him through. And it strengthened his love for us. And that to me is faith. That to me is the picture of what all of us are trying to apply with these verses when we say, what does it mean to live by faith? Right? Wu's surgery didn't get us to love him more because we loved him We wanted that transformation. God loves you just as you are. He sees you for your brokenness. He sees you for the disfiguration that sin causes on that that has been created in his image. He sees us in all of our brokenness. He loves you. He loves you. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, young, old, black, white, you name it, he loves you. And so he looks upon us with that love that has been expressed through Jesus and he says, but I know what the world is going to bring. And I want you to be ready for it. And so you're gonna need transformation. And I'm going to take you into seasons of life where all you're going to be able to have to navigate fears, concerns, confusion, pain, healing is a childlike faith. A faith that helps you see that whatever that season might be, that you're going to get through it. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Whether it's on the mountains, or in the valleys. I'm going to take you to these moments. I'm going to take you through these seasons. And if you continue to trust in me and trust in my love, you will discover time and time again, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's hard, even when it's scary, even when it's confusing, I'm here for you. I'm going to transform you in a way that allows you to Respond to the world around you and helps you better see the love that I have for you and will help you grow in your love for me. That's what it means to live by faith. So whatever season you're in, church, know he loves you. And however you may feel facing that season, He's going to walk you through it. We have a God that is with us on the mountains and in the valleys. 
And so living by faith allows us to enter into any season of life and give him praise. Because we know that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. We know that he loves us because he sent his son to die for us. And so no matter what we experience here, we'll give him praise because we live by faith. Let us be such a people. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for loving us just as we are. And yet loving us enough, God, that you desired a transformation that helps us not just better encounter the world around us, but helps us see time and time again that you were faithful, that you're always there, that you're gonna walk with us through all seasons and circumstances. And so God, forgive us of the times that we lose track. Forgive us of those moments when our heart is inclined to boast. Forgive us of those moments, God, where we delude ourselves into thinking that we can earn our righteousness by a certain moral code of conduct or standard. Forgive us for loving the things of the world and wanting to boast in those riches rather than in the riches that you give us in Christ. God, may we be a people that truly understands what it means to walk by faith. God, may we be that innocent child that looks to a heavenly father in fear and concern and apprehension and uncertainty and knows In our heart of hearts, you're going to get us through to the other side. What a thing to behold. May we never lose sight of it. And may it be the source and the motivation of our faith today and forevermore. We love you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.